You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. And so as we begin, uh, we'll look at Isaiah 6 and look with me at verse 1. We're going to begin the way that uh, Isaiah begins, begins this way. He says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. Isaiah starts with, in the year that King Uzziah died. And this might be for us kind of a small, superfluous detail, uh, but it was anything but that uh, for the original hearers of, the, uh, of this prophecy. It gave them meaningful and significant context. And what I want to do is I want to pause and take probably a little bit longer than, and than we're used to uh, to look at the context of this passage. Uh, and, and I think that it's important for us to see the story that God is writing in humanity because, let me... Um, let me put it this way, as, as New Testament Christians, uh, for those of us who are Christians who are familiar with the story of the Bible, we often summarize the story of the Bible in a four-part story, right? We, we, we describe uh, God created all things, uh, created all things good. We fell from grace. Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden and were cast out of God's presence. Part three is, restora- uh, excuse me, is redemption. God promised redemption for his people, and we see that arrive in Christ. And then the fourth part of the gospel is restoration. We eagerly await. Right now, we live in eager expectation for God's return when he will fix everything, make all things new. And it's great. It's very helpful to simplify the gospel in that way. But here's what happens when we match that up with the Bible. We turn for creation, part one. We look at Genesis 1, and we say in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then for the fall, we turn to Genesis 3, just a couple chapters later, and we see, uh, we see the fall. We see Adam and Eve sin and get cast out of the Garden of Eden. And then part three of the story is redemption that we see come in Christ. And so what we do is we then turn all the way to Matthew, uh, and we spend most of our time looking at the redemption of Christ, which is revealed to us in the New Testament. And what I don't want to do, I don't want to misspeak, right? It, it is a great thing to spend, all of our, spend most of our time, I should say, in the New Testament, because we see Jesus clearly revealed uh, in the New Testament. We see this hope that we have because of what Jesus has done for us. Uh, but unfortunately, when we do that, we leave out the bulk of the Old Testament, this story of God that he's been writing through all of creation, this story that gives us a, a kind of a, a window into why Jesus is such a big deal. And so for us this morning, uh, we're going to begin looking at how we got from the fall to King Uzziah. And bear with me, what I'm going to do is, is I'm going to take about five minutes, hopefully less than five minutes, to summarize about 5,000 years of human history. Uh, and so I'll try to be as clear uh, and helpful as possible. So we start with the fall, and we have Adam and Eve in the garden. Because of their sin, they were cast out of God's presence, God's holy presence. They made themselves unholy and were cast out. And although God had promised that in that day that you eat of the fruit of this tree, you shall surely die, we see that Adam and Eve didn't die immediately. They bore children. The line of humanity continued because God had a plan to restore his relationship with humanity. Nevertheless, the effects of sin entering the world were drastic. Adam and Eve's son, Cain, killed his brother Abel, And we see things just kind of go downhill from there. Uh, Ten generations later, we see sin so wreak havoc in the world that God determines to make an end to all flesh. We come to the story of the flood. God determines to judge the earth, to end all life on earth. But one man named Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And so God chose Noah. He said, Noah, bring your family, build an ark, bring two of each, a male and female of each animal. Uh, You might be familiar with the story. Uh, and, And I will preserve you through this storm that's about to happen. And so because of, God's, uh, because of man's sin, God determined to judge the earth 
but we see that God preserved a remnant because he had a plan to restore his people. Several generations later, though, we come to the story of the Tower of Babel. Because of their sin, I see Noah, the, the flood subsided. Noah and his family started multiplying and covering the earth like God had told Adam and Eve to do. And so we see the multiplication of people. A few generations later, though, all the people come together and they determine that they want to build a tower to heaven and make a name for themselves. And God is displeased with this, so he scatters them across all the earth, confusing their language so that never again can they come together to do something like this. So we see, continuing, uh, so we see sin continuing to wreak havoc, but God had a plan to set apart a people for himself. We see that when several generations later we come to this man named Abraham. God said to Abraham, you will be the father of a great nation through which all of the nations of the earth, which have been scattered because of the Tower of Babel, you, you and your family are the, are the nation through which all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. And indeed, Abraham has a son named Isaac, who had a son named Jacob, who God renamed Israel. And Israel had 12 sons who married and had children who became the 12 tribes of Israel. And so we see God's plan continue to gradually unfold. Several generations later, Isaiah, uh, Israel, this chosen nation of God, finds himself in bondage and slavery in Egypt. So God raises up a man named Moses. Moses leads them out of slavery towards the promised land. Through Moses, God gave his people the gift of the law, intending to set them apart, to make them distinct from the nations around them, to make them holy. You see what God's doing? God grants, uh, God's plan is continuing to unfold for his people. Several generations later, though, just a few generations later, we see that sin still remains a problem. Israel, in, against, in rebellion against God, uh, who is their true king, demands a human king. They wanted a king, as they said, to judge us like all of the other nations. God had set them apart to be distinct from every nation, but they just wanted to be like every other nation. They chose their own way rather than trusting God. And God grants them their desire, but warns them that they are indeed rejecting their true king. And we see that with the first king, King Saul. Uh, king Saul, uh, Israel was excited because God gave them a king, uh, but Saul winds up uh, doing a whole lot of things that led to Israel being worse off than when they started. But after Saul, we get King David, this man after God's own heart who God richly blesses. Uh, lots of war victories. Israel becomes established as a nation. They move to the city of Jerusalem. God gives them a city to dwell in. To David, David's son Solomon was the king of peace. His reign was a reign of peace. God gave Solomon the honor, King Solomon, the honor of building him a temple in which God would dwell in the midst of his people. But then, you know, in, in the midst of this hope and this excitement of, of the Jews of Israel, we see sin continue to do what sin does. Uh, and we see the generation after Solomon, Israel splits in two. The north, Israel, the south, Judah. Uh, we see king after king, ups and downs of the people of Israel as they learn, as they go back and forth between trusting the Lord and trusting in themselves. And so 12 generations after King Saul, we come to a man named Uzziah. Which is, what, which is what brings us to our text this morning, uh, in, the, in the year that King Uzziah died. And let me tell you briefly about King Uzziah. Um, we read his story in 2 Chronicles 26. Uzziah reigned for 52 years. This was longer than any king had reigned in Israel before him. Uh, and we read that Uzziah was marvelously helped by God. This was an era of prosperity for the nation. Uh, there were huge construction projects. Trade was great. They won major key battles. They built cities and fortified them. The temple was overflowing with worshipers. But the problem was that this worship had no effect on their lives. They were not holy. They were not distinct from the nations around them. And we see that King Uzziah, at the end of his life, turned to sin, 
we read that when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. He went into the temple to burn incense, which is something that only the priests were to do. Uh, And as a result of his false worship, he was struck with leprosy, and he died soon after. That is the backdrop for our passage. God was to be Israel's king. They had demanded a human king. Uh, And now their king had just died, uh, this king in whom they had placed their hope. Um, And Israel was thrown into turmoil and uncertainty about who the next king was going to be, what was going to happen. Are we going to get a Donald Trump or a Hillary Clinton? The nation was in turmoil. But no, this, it's in this year, it's in this year that King Uzziah had died, that Isaiah saw the Lord sitting upon his throne high and lifted up, as if to say, Uzziah is dead, but your king is not dead. And we know now that Isaiah's prophetic ministry came at a time of, of, of unique significance for the people of Israel, because just a few generations later, we would see the complete dissolution of this kingdom, of this earthly theocracy. Uh, the line of kings would fail. The people of God were about to lose their kingdom and be scattered among the nations of the earth for 500 years of silence before the coming of their promised Messiah. And so for Isaiah and for God's people, this writing, this vision came at a time of, in which it was of utmost importance to realize that salvation came through God alone, that man was unable uh, to bear the weight of the hope and the expectation of other men. Now more than ever, Israel needed a vision of the holiness of God. So suffice it to say that this little phrase at the beginning of verse 1 is anything but a superfluous detail. We, like the initial hearers of these words, are given immediate, meaningful context for what we're about to read. So with that, let's look at the text. Read, read this text for us, and what I want to do is I want to see if we can redeem our imaginations a little bit, see if you can picture this scene. Imagine the king of the universe sitting upon his throne, high and lifted up. His presence fills every square inch of the temple. Isaiah's gaze is immediately cast down in humility. Surrounding the throne are angelic beings of the highest order. Even they, the seraphim, cannot bear to look upon God's glory. Isaiah struggles to find the words to describe them, but he clearly hears them calling out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The earth quakes The foundations of the temple shake violently at the booming sound of God's voice, and the house of the Lord fills with smoke. Again, the Hebrew language fails Isaiah. He cannot fully describe what he sees, but clearly he is terrified, humiliated in the presence of supreme authority. We're not told how many seraphim there were. There could have been, there were at least two. There could have been 200, there could have been 2,000, but we do know that the seraphim were holy angelic beings who were eternally employed with the job, the vocation of bringing uh, praise to their God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. In Hebrew, to emphasize a word, you just repeat it. It's the, in English, the equivalent is to make that word bold, uh, to put it in size 72 font, uh, for those of you who still use Microsoft Word. Um, This is a way of emphasizing the reality of a word. Uh, As R.C. Sproul, a theologian, once, once said, the Bible says that God is holy, holy, holy. Not that he is merely holy or even holy, holy. He is holy, holy, holy. The Bible never says that God is love, 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 or mercy, 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 or wrath, 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 or justice, justice, justice. It does say that he is holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of his glory. The word holy captures the essence of God in heaven. 
And as, I, and as Isaiah beholds the wondrous glory of God and his holiness, what does he do? Does he smile and join in the song? No, that's not what happens. He doesn't smile. He doesn't sing. He doesn't lean back and say, interesting, now I understand, and now I believe. He didn't give thanks. When Isaiah sees God in his holiness, everything fades to black, except for his unworthiness. And read with me in verse 5. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The Hebrew word that's been translated, I am lost, is is a word that means I am undone. I've been made to cease. I'm cut off. I'm doomed to die. You see, before the throne of God above, Isaiah was not encouraged by what he saw. He was undone by what he saw. He saw just how unholy unrighteous, unworthy, he and the rest of God's people were to be in the presence of God. In the light of the presence of God, the darkness within us is laid bare, and as a result, Isaiah is instantly prepared to face his death with no hope of salvation. As the prophet Malachi once said, who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? So what we see here is a a characteristic of a true encounter with God, Throughout the Bible, an encounter with God leads to humiliation. In this text, we see the call to fall on our faces in repentance from our sin. What what prevents us, though, from heeding this call? What prevents us from reacting to God's holiness the way that Isaiah does? I think that in large part, this is due to the fact that just like Israel and their kings, we are living in the midst of an authority crisis. And I'm not talking about the, the, the choice of president that we'll need to make next year. Um, I think it, it truly is that we have a categorical, uh, categorical misunderstanding of what it means, uh, what authority means, and I think that really stems from our misunderstanding of freedom. You see, the question for us is not whether we're under authority. We're all under authority. Uh, the question is, which authorities are you willing to recognize? And I think that uh, the concept of any kind of external authority, any kind of authority that comes from somewhere else is uncomfortable for us. And while this manifests itself uh, in different ways throughout history and around the world, here in the West, and and particularly in the United States, I believe that what we've done is we've taken freedom of biblical truth and we've twisted it uh, to mean something that it doesn't mean, uh, turning ourselves into gods. We've done that by morphing the concept of freedom into the concept of autonomy, which isn't a biblical value. Autonomy is inherently self-focused. Auto means self. Autonomy is self-focused, whereas freedom is inherently other-focused. Read with me. uh, Actually, I'll read this for you. This is from Galatians 5. Uh, The Apostle Paul says this, starting in verse 13. He says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. See, freedom was given for the purpose of loving another. But in a world like ours, which is individualistic, humanistic, based on autonomy, everyone decides uh, what is right for them because of a de facto rejection of external authority. We have no absolute morality. We have moral anarchy. You see, though, uh, there is a God. Uh, There is a supreme authority who desires to bring order out of this chaos. But the problem is, Uh, is that this requires that we recognize and submit to his authority even when we disagree with it. And this is where we snag. Think about it. 
God, commits us, uh, God commands us to submit to our political leaders, but we feel justified in pouring out contempt on those we disagree with. We are to honor our parents, yet we slander them. We're to obey our masters, yet we trash talk our bosses. We're to submit to the authority of the local church, and yet many of us are just one bad sermon away from joining the, street, uh, the church down the street. God's authority should affect our understanding of everything. It should provide the bedrock for our philosophy of government, for our philosophy of family, for our philosophy of work, for our philosophy of the church. But instead, God's authority has become weightless. Does God have the authority to tell you uh, when you're wrong? Or do you try to squeeze him into your view of the world where you've already got things figured out? Is God your cheerleader uh, or is he your Lord? A.W. Tozer once said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And I have to agree, what you think about God determines your worldview and your worldview determines how you live. Whether you think he's good, bad, personal, indifferent, non-existent, or powerful, each attribute will play itself out in your life. If we think that God is always looking down his nose at us, waiting for us to screw up, then we're going to white-knuckle our way uh, through life uh, because we don't want to let God down. If we think God is just a cheerleader, that he just affirms everything that we, do, uh, that we do, then it doesn't really matter how we live our lives. See, this text indicates that there's one thing that should come into the forefront of our minds when we think about God, his holiness. Like Israel, we need to catch Isaiah's vision for the holiness of God. Isaiah sees God in the splendor of his holiness and instantly knows that God is in charge and that his sin is a huge problem. Now understand, we know from chapters 1 through 5 of Isaiah that Isaiah was already a man who was in pursuit of holiness. He was already a man in pursuit of obeying the Lord. He was already a man who was preaching woe to those who were lost and wandering. Here, though, when Isaiah says, woe is me, he realizes that this woe is for him too, unless God saves him. See, if we don't grasp the holiness of God, then we won't see sin as an internal condition. We might see it as a social ill, but not something that, that, that holds a, a great personal weight. So where do we look for the picture of the holiness of God? Well, let's look at one scripture that I think is important for us uh, as we look uh, at Isaiah 6. This comes out of John chapter 12, uh, verses 40 through 41. John says this, For again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. He's directly quoting out of Isaiah 6, which uh, in a passage that comes just after our sermon text. So he quotes Isaiah, and then in verse 41, John says this. He says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Who was this him that Isaiah saw? Who was this him that John identifies? You see, what John explains is that when Isaiah, this, when we zoom out in John 12, we see that this is a prophecy, this is, this is a passage about Jesus about how Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets, about how Jesus came to fulfill things even though people wouldn't believe in him. And so what John tells us is that when Isaiah saw God's glory and spoke of him who he saw on the, floor, on the throne, he was speaking of Jesus. That's why it says in Hebrews 12 that we are to run with endurance the race that is set before us with our eyes fixed on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Because there is where we see a true picture of holiness. We don't run the race with our eyes uh, set on the governing authorities. We don't run the race looking to our pastors because they'll tell us what to do. We don't run the race looking to the law of God to make sure we're living well. We run the race with our eyes fixed on Jesus, 
the founder and perfecter of our faith. So let's read on. Let's go back to Isaiah 6. In verse 5, Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. For I've seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And now, in verse 6, read with me. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Isaiah's response to God's holiness was the realization of his utter inability to save himself from within. And when Isaiah was unable to draw near to God at this moment, the moment of utter hopelessness, God drew near to him, taking away his guilt and atoning for his sin. Get that? This is what God does. God in his holiness reveals the holes that are the Swiss cheese of our hearts. And then immediately after, he fills them with the grace of Christ. Isaiah couldn't do it. Only God could do it. Let's not stop there, though. The burning coal was a symbol for Isaiah of his guilt being taken away, of his sin being atoned for. But what did that symbol point to? We know the rest of the story of the Old Testament, and we have the New Testament. We see that Israel had demanded a king, so God granted them a human theocracy. He gave them over to their desires, and the human kings failed. But what was God's response? His response His response was to become human, and as a human, to take his rightful place on the throne. Israel asked for a human king, and God became their human king. God essentially says to them, you get what you want, and I get what I want. God used the weakness of his people ultimately to turn it around for their good and for his glory. This is a textbook example of Romans 8.28, famous passage that says, for all those who love God, he works all things together, good and bad. Good and bad are not in the verse, but he works all things together for our good. And all of this happened. Listen, all of this happened in history. This this story that God is writing, all of this happened because God is holy. God is holy, and because of this, he had to cast Adam and Eve out of his presence because of their sin. But he promised redemption. Throughout history, God has always wanted a people, a treasured people for his own possession. And in order for us to be in his presence... He had to deal with the problem of our sin. And the way that he accomplished that was he came, became a man, (laughs) took up the cross, paid the penalty that each of us deserved, and atoned for our sins. You see, Isaiah saw the temple quake because God was on the throne. We have seen the temple quake because God was on the cross. Moses Moses delivered God's people from the power and bondage of slavery. Christ delivered his people from the power and bondage to sin. All of biblical history leads up to the moment when Jesus was made unholy so that we could be grafted in, so that we could be made holy. And let me close this way. This is the first week, uh, like, like we said, like Reed said, um, like I said at the beginning, this is the first week of a series on holiness, and it's in- incredibly important that we talk about holiness coming out of a conversation on mission because as we looked at, holiness and mission go hand in hand. But more than that, holiness is incredibly important to God. Holy is who he is, and holy is who Jesus made us to be. As J.C. Ryle, a 19th century bishop of Liverpool, put it, he said, we must be holy because there's, this is one grand end and purpose for which Christ came into the world. Jesus is a complete savior. He does not merely take away the guilt of a believer's sin. He does more. He breaks its power. 
and for an accurate picture of what that must be, uh, what we must be, we must look to Jesus. And as we do, we'll realize that it's not about us, the story that God is writing. It's not about us, it's about Jesus. We, like Isaiah, need to be captivated by God's holiness. We can't define sin apart from God's holiness, and we can't define grace apart from God's holiness. It's only when we see God's holiness that we will be truly broken over the personal and deadly nature of our sin and be able to cry out for mercy. And it's in this moment, in our moment of utter helplessness, of utter inability to draw near to God, that he draws near to us and makes us clean. The Bible says that those who humble themselves before the throne of God will be exalted. For all who say, woe is me, God will do away with our sin. And when our sin is done away with, we get to approach the throne of God with confidence and awe and reverence because of grace that we have truly experienced. So when we share about God, we don't do that with fear because it's like sharing a book that we've actually read. It's like recommending a song that we've actually heard. You see, when we realize what sin is and what grace is, our understanding of authority comes back together. We see that God's repeated exercises of authority are good, and we can listen to our bosses, respect our parents, submit to the local church. Submission in and of itself becomes holy and beautiful because we fix our eyes on Jesus and see the perfect picture of submission, of laying down your life for your friends. You see, some of us, some of us are drowning in despair, and all we need is what Isaiah received. When Jesus said, knock, and the door will be opened, he gave that as a promise. Knock, and the door will be opened, and it will change your life. You get to stop trying to be the hero because you see that God is the hero. While he loves us, he isn't impressed by us. <laughs> but as Christians in Christ, we get to sing the song that we just sang. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. This is the good news of the gospel. We have a holy God, totally unlike us, who came to be like us so that we could be like him forever and ever. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we love you and we thank you for your word. We thank you for your church. We thank you for this place, this space to gather and worship you. Help us, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit to behold you in all of your holiness. Help us to repent in a way that, has, in a way that gives us hope in Jesus Christ. Let us not repent in a way that causes us to think that we need to pay the penalty for our sin, but show us Christ. Show us this burning coal that has touched our lips through which uh, you forgive our sins, you make atonement for us. Cause this story, Lord, that you are writing in all of human history, cause this story to be true for us. We are so thankful that you died so that we could be a part of it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.